fellow Switches, this is Sara. Welcome to another solo episode of the Switches podcast. How are you guys doing today? I have had a very productive Sunday. It is Sunday as I record, although the podcast does come out Tuesday at 6pm ET. This podcast hopefully will be a bit dynamic. I am gonna talk about a bunch of different things. We're gonna start with Willa, because what the heck is up with her? Uh, We have talked about Willa a little bit here and there, but I really want to get into what's with her character, what's the story there, what can we expect in season two, and how actually important is she to the spree? There is so much going on with his storyline that we don't know of exactly but there there must be a lot because well you don't just end up becoming one of the leaders of um the spree whether she's a big fish or not she is a leader of at least a group uh within the spree how did she get there so what we do know and we have mentioned this in the podcast before is that she married a civilian, she didn't exactly love the army, but she was a fantastic healer and every unit wanted to be deployed with her. We know that she was under the command of Petra, we know that she was deployed by Petra, and we know that she was being constantly deployed. Now, Most of this we know because of Rael, so all of this is from Rael's perspective and we don't really have the real reason necessarily for why she was being deployed so much. We kinda assume that she was being deployed a lot as punishment for having married a civilian because that's what Rael implies, but we don't know whether that's actually true. It could simply It could be something as simple as she was a fantastic healer, so she was needed a lot. It could literally be that. But if we go with the storyline that she was being punished for marrying a civilian, that would give her some sort of revenge motive for joining the spree. However, did she have that kind of ideology before against the army? Did she disagree with the army? Does she, you know, does she hate Alder for signing the Salem Accord? Did she, was she resentful of the Salem Accord? Which which is completely understandable, but is that what is going on here? Because we've got witches like Tally who aren't resentful of the Accord. Well, Tally might have come to realize that the army isn't this just big, heroic figure that she thought it was. She also hasn't really resented Alder yet for signing the accord, per se. She still thinks that the army can be used for good and that the Salem Accord isn't necessarily something bad. Some witches must agree with Alder, some witches must feel grateful to Alder for signing the accord and at least officially and legally ending their persecution. 
So was Willa just always against the army and against Alder? Was she always resentful of Alder, sort of the way the Rael is, but obviously a lot more intense, apparently? And why did she think that the spree would be a good option? From, from what we know from Rael, she wasn't necessarily a bad person, at least not how you would picture a bad person to be. I don't expect the reason for her joining the spree to be a villain story. I expect it to be much more human and a reaction to what she saw as injustice, what, what, what was, what is injustice. But also she's been portrayed as a very, very smart person. So how did she end up in a terrorist group? Did she actually make that decision when she was an adult? Or did it happen when she was much younger, like Scylla? If it happened the way that it did for Scylla, that's much easier to manipulate. And what about her family? Um, we don't really know much of Rael's family. We, we see her family tree. I'm pretty sure, I should check, but I'm pretty sure that Rael's family tree is, is very, very short. She doesn't have any cousins or uncles and aunts. Rael doesn't seem to have a family beyond her father and her mother. Why is that? Witches are strongly encouraged to have children, obviously. So did her grandmother die too soon? She only had Willa? Uh, did she choose not to have other children? Did she also marry a civilian? What is the story? Could there be a much older, um, longer story that had been going on for generations in the Collar family? Could that be why Willa, sort of her hatred sort of uh, piled up? Could there be some other story from her childhood that we do not know? Could it be that she made this decision then as an adult, as we are led to believe with the information that we have just now. Just now, the most likely option with the information that we have is that Willa did join the spree when she was an adult and has chosen to join the spree either out of uh, resentment or out of actually believing in the cause. But if she believes in the cause of the spree, which is to free witches from uh, the Salem Accord, basically, then what's with the awful parenting? Why would she let Rael go through all of that? Why would she let Rael think that she was dead? I understand why letting her get enlisted. I understand that because, you know, if she didn't if she weren't enlisted, then the army would have gone after her because they knew of her existence. While if she had gone enlisted, then perhaps later on she could have faked her death, just like Willa did, and joined the spree instead. So I get that. But, first of all, Rael was always against the army. She comes to the army with this resentment, which... Yes, part of it is really enhanced by the death of her mother, 
But it kind of looks like part of it must have already been there because Willa put it there. The whole talk about conscription being slavery, that doesn't sound like something that Rael just came up with because of her mother's death. It sounds like something that perhaps Willa used to say and Rael just took as her own opinion, which happens often with kids. So it's quite realistic. So why not tell Rael? Why not let Rael in on the whole, I'm joining the spree and faking my death? Or I am part of the spree and I'm faking my death to go do some mission or whatever. What, what's her plan? What's her end game? What, why does she choose to do it this way? I mean, she's been in the army. Did she not bond? at all with her unit? Does she not understand the the kind of sisterhood that can be built in the army? That should have flagged up as a threat to her plan all along. Letting Rael join the army means letting her join a unit. It means she's not alone anymore. She left Rael in a very vulnerable situation. She was alone with her dead from the brief moments that we see, she didn't have friends or age, which, you know, might might be wrong, it might be something that we didn't see, but she still did have uh, friends or age. But what we are shown of Rael before the army was just her visiting this um, older woman to heal her. And it, it kind of looked like that was sort of how she spent her day. So, yeah, she probably had friends, but I think we would have seen her say goodbye to her friends or something if they had been important. I mean, for Abigail, we see her say goodbye to her boy toy, and for Tally, later on, we see her uh, reunite with Glory, so we know kind of how, or we can imagine how their social lives were. But Riel, we don't see anything of her social life at all. We're not told any information. So I think it would be a kind of fair assumption to say that she didn't really have anyone her age she had a bond with. So she was in the most vulnerable position then, psychologically wise. Then she joins the army and she's, she's bound to form some kind of connection to her unit. They spend a whole year training together, going through stuff together. At least a friendship is bound to form. And then asking Riel at that point to betray the people that have become her closest friends and who have been with her through so much, that's... you must understand that that's a lot harder at that point. Also. Training is not supposed to be the hardest part of being in the army. So there was also the risk, this didn't actually happen, but when Willow was thinking about it, she must have considered that joining the army could have meant that Rael would have had the chance to, you know, find something positive about the army. Find out that perhaps she didn't mind as much. And you know, it didn't happen, but it could have. Why didn't, why didn't she think of that? And in that case, why didn't she have 
still a lot because I still understand letting her join the army just because of the whole otherwise the army would go after her if she were a dodger. But why not have Silla bring her in immediately? Like as soon as because Silla has immediately has a hook in Riel. She's got Riel wrapped around her little finger, she does. And it would have been so easy to just have her bring Riel in. I suppose that perhaps would have been more suspicious. Because what what the plan was, I suppose, was to have a distraction. Actually, we don't know why the wedding was chosen as the actual day of extraction. Because the attack on Charvel, that was the Camarilla. So were the balloons still the Camarilla or was that the distraction that the spree was going to use to extract Riel? And does Willa even have that much access to the spree's resources? Because the balloons didn't do anything at all except distract people. But the attack begun before the balloons. The actual attack on Charvel. My interpretation of that event was that the attack on Charvel obviously was the Camarilla, while the balloons were the spree who were creating a distraction for Scylla and Riel to be extracted. Which made sense. Okay, have Riel disappear in a spree attack, people can think that she's dead, that's okay, the army isn't gonna hunt her down as a dodger. Cool, but you could have organized a spree attack before the wedding. Even just, uh, it would have been really really early and for the series itself wouldn't have worked because it was just episode 2, but even then they could have just staged a mini attack or a distraction just like they did at the wedding. At the, you know, the reenactment of the Salem Accord being signed, they could have just attacked that event. Which, by the way, was very much less protected than the wedding. So extraction at that point would have been easier. And perhaps Willa didn't think that Rael would have been ready at that point to, you know, follow Scylla, but she did follow Scylla to a cemetery. It wouldn't have been hard at that point to knock Rael out and just extract them both. And then Yes, Rael is going to be upset. Yes, you are totally going to ruin her chances with Scylla. But I'm your mother. I'm alive. I'm not dead. Surprise. And at that point, Rael didn't have such a bond with Abigail and Tally, so it would have been much easier uh, for the spree to kind of brainwash her. But that's not what Willa did. And I, I don't really get it. Were there no other chances after that but before the wedding? And seriously, how did they trust Scylla? How? I mean, they even knew that she was falling in love with Riel, so why would they still trust her? Just send someone so that Scylla can't get out of the whole extraction thing. Send someone, knock Riel out, and there you go. But no, that's not what Willa did. And Willa's been acting like Riel needed to be brainwashed by Scylla. So perhaps she doesn't think that being alive and telling Riel believe the spree, not the army, is going to be enough. 
perhaps she doesn't think that mother influence will be enough to convince Riel to join the spree. But in that case, why then? Did she just go, oh, Scylla is totally my daughter's type. I'm sure that she could convince her with those blue eyes. Which, I mean, is not wrong. She wouldn't be right to think that way. But it seems... It's, her plan seems so amateurish and silly, kind of. It just doesn't seem the plan of somebody who managed to successfully and quite skillfully fake her death. Unless that was somebody else's plan, unless Willa isn't actually behind everything or even just behind her own death. Perhaps she's answering to someone else who has planned everything and they left. Um, perhaps they didn't even mean for Rael to be in the spree. Perhaps they're just like, they want Rael for her powers and Willow was like, oh, please let me get her in a safe way rather than have her harmed if somebody else is taking care of it. So like, I'll try to take her in and gently. I don't know, it's just... She's such a mystery and she's being portrayed like throughout the season, the season, she was this big loss for Rael and she was kind of the explanation that Rael's hatred for the army was built on. That all of that was taken away and it was replaced with a villain and now we just have Willa as a villain. And that's, ah, I can't wait to understand her better, to just not only see her as a villain. I want more, I want so much more, I want so much explanation, that I, that's what I always want, I know. I want to know why Willa has joined the spree and I want to know why she thought that this plan could work to bring Rael in. I want to know all of it. I don't know if this was actually interesting or wherever, but this is getting way longer than I had planned, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop the segment here. A few podcast episodes ago, I said I liked that Rael and Scylla didn't say I love you straight away. They waited at least six months before they did. Was probably longer than that but yes they well Scylla said it for the first time at the wedding and I said that I like that and that I had to say it earlier to some of my exes because I was very young and I felt very pressured into it and the one time I was very pressured into it but it's also a stereotype for lesbians Especially lesbians, Suffolk women in general, but mostly it's a very lesbian stereotype. For lesbians to go very fast um, and for lesbian or Suffolk relationships to progress very quickly. And that's quite an unhealthy stereotype because, and you know, it's, it's sort of the U-Haul stereotype. Um, the U-Haul stereotype is kind of more extreme. It's uh, it's when two girls move in together really, really fast, like in a couple of months or something, or in less than a month. 
if you don't know, this is a curiosity fact, but if you don't know, the name you all comes from the brand of vans, moving vans. It's like a, a moving company. So that's where it comes from. That's why it's called U-Hauling. Anyway, it can be quite a harmful stereotype because for one, it makes people feel pressured. It means it kind of gives this image of lesbians like they're very, very fast. And then especially young lesbians, when they get in a relationship, they kind of feel like they have to go very fast. They kind of feel like they have to know right away if the relationship is going to work out or not. It also makes you kind of miss out on the first phase stage of relationship. You know, when you don't really know where this is going, but you're just, you're just enjoying it and there's all the what ifs and there's all the soft moments of the whole talk about if we're still together by then, we could do this or whatever. And that's that's kind of cute. And it's not, that's not a pressure thing. That's more of a, I'm hopeful, but it's okay if it doesn't happen kind of thing. And it's sweet. And looking back, you can, you know, you can remember those little moments if you do get to that point. You miss so much fun and you... You miss out on all the little discovering about each other part. And as well, if you, especially if you move in, but even if you sort of enter a further stage of the relationship before time, before it's time, you are not learning each other before you decide to be that with that person. You you move in and you don't really know anything about each other. You don't even know if you're compatible. And at that point, if that does happen, if you move in before you even know whether you're compatible, that can be harmful to the relationship as well because it can accelerate its demise. It really can. It can break it off a lot quicker. If you take the time to learn each other, you might learn that there's things that you need to compromise on or you might learn that there's differences that you need to make up for, habits that the other might have that could annoy you and you need to kind of get used to it and find a way to get over it, or the other person needs to find a way to kind of rein it in um, so that they're not annoying you too much. You know, there's, there's a balance to be found and there's still there will still be work to do on that balance once you do move in. But... If you kind of find how to be compatible and how to be in each other's space, how to share something, moments, to, to share a life before you move in, which might include small things like learning the other person's schedule, understanding how their their everyday life works. Like, I don't know, do they like tea in the morning? Um, are they grumpy before they get coffee? I don't know. There's a lot of things. If I wake up before 6am and I've had actual sleep, I'll be super energetic. But if I wake up after 8am, 
I will be a goblin who can't have a conversation and just needs to be left alone in bed. If I wake up energetic, I'll want to have a shower, a shower and I'll want to do things and go out and maybe go for a walk or something. If I wake up after 8am, just don't touch me, don't talk to me, just no. Unless you're cuddling me, just leave me alone. That's pretty much it. <laughs> If I if I eat too much, I'll go in a food coma and I'll be very very happy about it, but I'll just get sleepy, and I won't follow conversations and stuff. And I'll get, I guess some people might say it's cute. It's not cute. It's annoying, but also it's just such a satisfying condition. <laughs> but there's all little things. There's situations that like shared space sort of situations that I find incredibly irritating like when a person doesn't clean after themselves it's just so annoying and it doesn't matter that if I live alone I do it too because I'm living alone then it doesn't matter but if I'm living with someone else then it's really important for me it's really a respect thing for me and I've had problems in that regard with flatmates but that's okay because I don't need to like my flatmate I don't well you know it's better if you like them but you don't need to um, and I definitely do not need to love my flatmate <laughs> I'm not in a relationship with them I'm not sharing a bed with them but in a relationship that's stuff that it's important to know and it's important to know how to live around it and with it Knowing that stuff before going to live together is much better than finding all of it out when you move in. Because there's a lot to know about people and it's better to kind of spread it over a longer period of time. And certain things it would be better to at least mentally prepare yourself for before you actually have to deal with them every day. So yeah, having to deal with all of this at once when you do move in together too early, it can then mean that you don't manage to work on it. If there's a problem, you might not manage to work on it because it's all of these things piling up all together, all at once, and it's just too much for two people to handle. And then the relationship kind of goes up in flames. And it might have worked out if you hadn't moved in together too soon. So it's quite a harmful stereotype to give to young people because that's how they then enter a relationship. If you're older and you want to move in too soon, go ahead. Who cares? It's, you know, it's your prerogative. Set whatever pace you want for your relationship. But we should really limit the way that we portray this in media because that gives the idea that that's how you should do it to young people. And young people don't necessarily already know how they want to handle something. Young people need to experience more before they decide, oh yeah, actually I can move in a month in. Okay, great. Well, have a few goes at relationships before, <laughs> before you actually decide that you're, you're fine with that pace. Anyway, all of this to say, I am very happy that Motherland chose not to do this with Rayla. And actually, we're shown that they do 
take their time before they say I love you. The boys. The thing is, well, we, you guys already know this. Obviously, everybody knows this. People just ignore it. But everything is about men already. Out there, everything we see is about men. Or most of what we see is about men. And it was so refreshing for Motherland to only have women as regulars and to only focus on the stories of women specifically. And it was criticized immediately for that. I think I might even have read a review of Motherland for Salem before the pilot was even released. This guy was just basing his judgment on the trailers. He was saying, just from the trailers, I can tell that this is one of those feminist shows that just has no men whatsoever. We're just going to pretend the men don't exist. And he was heavily criticizing it. And I'm like, you haven't even seen the show yet. You're just upset because for once you are not at the center of attention. So for then, for Elliot to then come out and say, in season two, we're going to have more men. It just kind of feels like they're giving in to those critics. And it's very demoralizing. And I do hope that it will be done correctly so the men won't be just suddenly regulars. Um, there'll be new interesting characters that will be introduced for side storylines or um, as part of exploring the main storylines, but not as protagonists of the main storylines. So, and I do trust that that's how it will be done. Still, considering that the no men criticism is still one of the major criticism made to Motherland for Salem, it's just really sad. It's kind of not sad, but well, it's the opposite of empowering. To have, to have a show come out that says, look, we're telling an interesting witchcraft story and it's all women. Men have very secondary roles, we barely see them, it's mostly women. Which is not entirely true because, like, we do see the men. They have plenty of space. They still have more space than women have in some men-centered movies. So, like, come on. But they're sidelined. And that was so refreshing and empowering. Especially it was empowering because most media that has that focuses on women, there will still be men in the important positions. And yes, they will be side characters, technically speaking. But maybe they'll be the teacher, the uh, the boss, the whatever, the, the figure of importance from whom the woman has learned or with whom the woman needs to be compared, or the, the kind of level that the woman needs to reach, or whatever. And we don't get that in Motherland. The president is a woman. The highest uh, army official is a woman. The ancient super powerful witch is a young girl. Uh, the protagonists are all girls. There's no important men figure. There's no, oh yeah, we're just, we're focusing our story on powerful women, but to be clear, the most powerful person in this 
um, area is a man, by the way, in this word, that the most powerful one is still a man. No, motherland doesn't do that. The most powerful person is a woman. And men are there, but they don't need to, to have this huge importance. And they do have importance in the world of motherland because childcare is, is very important. But they don't need to have the better than the women importance. So it was very empowering and refreshing. And then to have all of that in season one, and then at the end of season one, receive all the criticism that is, there are too many women, it needs more men. And for the show to come up with, there will be more men in season two. That's just demoralizing. It's kind of anticlimactic. I was on such a high and then it was like bringing me down. And it's not because I have something against having more male characters. I honestly do not care. But it is demoralizing for the show for this reason. And you can want more men or not. And I do think that it can be done in interesting ways. And you know, you could have trans men. You could have non-binary men. You can make it clear. You can use this to give more representation. It would be awesome if that were how Elliot is going to do this. I have a feeling this is not how he's going to do this. But that would be awesome. But if it's just representation for straight cis men, why? Why did that have to be announced? Because that was only announced for to, to appease the male audience. That's why it was announced. So, I don't know, it just, it just makes me a little sad. Kind of takes me down from the high of empowerment and excitement for a female-focused show. At the end of a female-focused show, what you say is there will be men next season. That's, that's just so demoralizing. Seriously, that's the best word I can find for it. So that's how I feel about having more men in season two. In one word, demoralized. If you have rewatched Motherland for Salem for the millionth time and you finally want to watch something else, my new recommendation is Teenage Bounty Hunters. It's a funny show. It's really, really funny. It's focused on these two sisters who kind of by accident become bounty hunters. Except they're still teenagers and they still have school. And within school they also have romance drama and all of that. And yes, of course, there is a queer element to the show. One of the sisters is queer and she has a romantic storyline with another girl from school. I am not going to tell you guys how that ends, but uh, to manage your expectations, I will say that whether this representation is amazing or not so amazing will entirely depend on season two. I have trust and faith, but to be fair, it does depend on season two. The ending is 
quite great. I'm not talking about the ending of uh, The Suffolk Couple. I'm talking about the ending of the show for season one. I really liked it. It's quite... Like, you expect it. You totally see it coming. But they still managed to do it in a way that you don't mind that it was expected. You don't mind that you easily knew what was going to happen. You're still... Not necessarily surprised, but you still very much enjoy it. And you still enjoy the shock of the characters. Again, it's really, really funny. It's quite smart in its humour. I really enjoyed the humour. And it kind of does a lot of self-criticism. It kind of calls itself out on things. It could be more diverse, for sure. Um, But you could say that of pretty much any show. There isn't a lot of ethnical diversity. I mean, there there's some, but not like it's not super diverse. And as far as queer representation goes, well, there's a suff- two Suffolk characters. One is a lesbian, and the other might be bisexual. It's not uh, confirmed yet. She doesn't. She's still figuring out her sexuality. She doesn't know how she identifies yet. There is another character that reads as gay, although it is in no way confirmed he's he's just a secondary character. Funny, but very, very secondary. And very much a support character to the lesbian. And I think that might be it. There could be other queer characters in there that are simply not explicitly queer. So the representation isn't like huge, but there's some representation and it's quite funny. So yeah, that is my recommendation for the day. Let me know if you like this. Like, uh, let me know if you would like a recommendation at every episode. We could make this into a regular segment and just have a recommended show or movie at the end of each episode. So Let me know if you want that. Let me know what you thought of the Willa talk. Let me know how you feel about the boys. Give us feedback. Tell us what you think of the podcast. Send us any requests. We love, love, love requests from you guys, uh, which can be pretty much anything. If you want us to cover a certain topic on the podcast, talk about anything else that is not necessarily motherland related, Requests like the one that we recently had from Linda, uh, there was a playlist, stuff like that, all welcome. You can tweet at us, you can message us on Twitter or Instagram at Switches Podcast, or you can send us an email at mfsswitches at gmail.com. Stay safe and thank you for tuning in.